that's it. Those are, those are the announcements uh, for this morning. I'm going to invite Julie Gilpin to come up, and Julie is going to read our text for us this morning. So we are going to be in Acts. Uh, this is Acts 4, verses 32 through 37. So the verses will be up on the screen. You can follow along with your Bibles uh, if you have them. Okay. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owner of owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Thanks, Julie. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. Lord, thankful for the way that you uh, reveal your heart to us, in, even in this passage this morning, and ask that you'd be changing us uh, by and, and through that word. We trust that that is a desire that you have uh, for us and with us this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, so the passage that we read this morning, it's, it's a snapshot of what really is, is and, and was uh, an extraordinary community here at the early part of the church's uh, history and life. That the death and the resurrection of Jesus after he ascended to heaven, uh, it immediately changed the people uh, who were following him. And what we see is this dynamic, growing community doing a new thing together. It was, it was an exciting time, and, and this passage fits kind of the overall pattern that we've seen in Acts. That Luke, who's the author of Acts, will give us a little vignette or a, or a kind of a qualitative description of what the community of the early church was like. And then what he does is he'll give us a, a description of an event, kind of this event that happens in the life of the church, a watershed moment, for example, like the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, right? And then, and then it will often be followed by a proclamation of who God is, of the gospel. And then people respond to it. And then again, we'll get another picture or vignette of the community. That's kind of the cycle that we see happening throughout Acts. And what that shows us is that the mission of Acts and the community that we see growing in Acts, those two things, they fit together. Mission and community, they, they go together. That evangelism and discipleship, the internal, the external focus of the church, they fit together. That mission and, and being on a shared mission together, it actually forges a sense of community. And in this passage, we see that. This passage is kind of the accent is back on the community itself. And it's a community that's amazing. Or would you want to be a part of a community like this? Are, you guys, are, are we awake this morning? Would you want to be a part of a community like this? Yes, right? Yes, and also kind of no. I remember I asked this question a few weeks ago, and I saw some people nodding, and I saw some people going, I don't know about that. And I was like, that's true, right? Because you can tell that these people have, they have put, they've put their whole lives into this community, and it is, it is costing them something. And yet there's something that's attractive about it to us. And what we see here is a community, not a community that's perfect, and we'll get there, believe me in Acts, it's coming, 
but we see a community that is powerful. We see a community who has a new center of gravity. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that this is a people who, who, who have had their center of gravity changed, that they are no longer at the center of their own universes. They're no longer a black hole that makes everything about themselves. No, that center of gravity has changed and the center of gravity of their lives is now uh, the gospel as revealed through Jesus Christ. And that new center of gravity changes everything in their lives. It puts them in new relationship with the people that they're around. And what we see in this passage this morning is that it puts them in new relationship with their possessions, with their resources. This passage is a living, breathing example of what happens when the gospel of Jesus becomes the center of someone's life and how it changes their relationship with the world. Which means that if we're gonna talk about this passage, if we're gonna do it justice this morning, we have to talk about money. Ooh. Did, did any of you talk about this passage in small group this last week? Okay. So in that conversation, did, you, did any of you notice the conversation kind of start with the conversation about money but then go like in other directions? Like also let's talk about time, right? What do we do with that? <laughs> yes, that is important. That's a legitimate application of this passage. What it also says about us often is that we are profoundly uncomfortable talking about money. And so when we can, we will take the conversation in another direction. That's because talking about money is so personal to us but it touches the very core of who we are and to talk about that for example in a small group in front of other people that is a very vulnerable thing but it's it's because money is so personal that Jesus talks about it so much almost more than any other single topic in the gospels Jesus talks about money because he knows it is tied in so deeply to our sense of self. That it has so much power, there are so many pitfalls, there's so much potential locked up in this conversation that money, Jesus tells us, is a mirror for our hearts. The way that we think about money, the way that we spend our money or don't spend our money or give our money or don't give our money, it not only is shaped by our pre-existing priorities, but it shapes us that the way that we spend and give and think about our money, it, it shapes us. It's such a trajectory for our lives. And because of that, because Jesus cares about us, because he cares about our hearts, he talks a lot about money. That's not just Jesus who does that. That's all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament. And so if we're going to talk about this passage, we've got to talk about that. And first, one of the first things this passage teaches us is the difference between stewardship and ownership. So we're going to talk about that this morning, the difference between stewardship and ownership. We're going to talk about how the resurrection supports and strengthens the kind of sacrificial giving that we see here. And then we're going to talk about what it looks like to use money as a kingdom tool. Okay, so that's where, that's where we're going, stewardship versus ownership. Okay, how the resurrection, how the grace of Jesus, how the gospel strengthens us for the kind of sacrificial giving we see here, and then what it looks like to see money at use, uh, put to use as a tool for God's kingdom. Okay, so first, this concept of stewardship. We see it in verse 32 of our passage, kind of right off the bat. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own 
but they had everything in common. The New Living Translation says it like this. And they felt that what they owned was not their own, so that they shared everything they had. Okay, so what they had was not their own. Which raises the question, uh, who did it belong to, right? If it's not theirs, well then whose is it? Does it belong, does it belong to the community? Does it belong to the church? Does it belong to the other believers? What we see in this passage, the conviction that we see the early church living out of is that ultimately everything that they possessed, it belonged to God. It doesn't belong to me. Who does it belong to? It belongs to the Lord. And that is a truth that we see proclaimed all throughout the scriptures. We see it in, in, in the book of James, for example. James says that every good and perfect gift comes from above coming down from the Father of heavenly lights in whom there is no shadow of variation due to change. Right? That, that every good thing in our lives and in our world is a gift of God. Or Psalm 50 uh, talks about the same thing. I got to fundraise for a while as a part of my job when I worked for a campus ministry and this was a, ver- this was a chunk of verses that they really liked in this organization. Okay? They would say, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's true. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of all the hills, all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. The Lord is saying, everything belongs to me. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. And of course it is. Right, what we believe about the way that God created the universe is that he created it from nothing. That all of the matter that has ever been that makes up our universe, that God created it. And all of the energy, all of the power that's been packed into our universe, God created it. And so everything that has been, is, or, what, or will be, is all, it all springs from God's creative work in the world. It all belongs to him. And that's why from the very beginning of creation, the way that God describes our role as humans in the world is as stewards. We see that in the very first chapter of scripture, Genesis 1, 28. This is after God has created Adam and Eve and it says God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. That right there at the beginning of time, God is commissioning Adam and Eve to be stewards over his creation. He's setting them up in a relationship. He's saying, I'm the king who's created the universe, and you now get to come under me as vice regents as people who have been endowed with creativity and with freedom to take that creation and steward it to draw out its potentialities, to help it to flourish, to nurture it, to make it into all of the things that it could be. All under the direction, under the authority of the king who created it. For the good of creation. That's, that's stewardship. But what sin does is sin comes in and this happens with Adam and Eve and it happens in our life and sin rejects the kingship and the authority of God. What it says is no, I will be king. 
right? I will be the ruler. So I can, I, can, I can take the resources that I have them, and rather than being a steward of those things, I'm an owner of those things. And as the owner of those things, I get to do with them whatever I will. I get to use them however I want. I can use creation however I want to use it. And that's the source of so much of the abuse, of the consumption, of the wrecking of creation and our world is us insisting, no, we will not be stewards, we will be owners. We've rejected our identity as stewards because we've rejected God as king. That's what sin does. And, and that desire to, to reject God as king, to be an owner, guys, it is in us from a very young age, isn't it? I'm, one of, I'm the oldest of four kids. Uh, my second sister, the, the third of the four, her first word, my mom often tells us, was the word mine. Not mommy, not daddy, mine. Right, because she's got other brothers and sisters and she's saying, no, 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 this stuff belongs to me, it's mine. My brother, who's the fourth of four, he had a, like a blanket that he would carry around. That was his comfort thing. And he called it his my mine, <laughs> right? Because especially when you get to the fourth one, you are fighting for everything that you can get. It's mine. And that desire to say, no, it's mine, it never goes away. Remember when you got your first paycheck, right? I got it when I was working at Savory Solutions. So I can tell you more about that job later. Uh, and I remember, like is probably true for all of us, you work that first job, you know how many hours you worked and how much you got paid for each of those hours and you're pumped to go and spend that money that you earned on whatever you want to spend it on and then you get your paycheck and you say, what happened, right? This money was mine and now the government has taken some of it. Okay, and then we grow up and we realize, well, that's how this works, you know, they, they pave the road so I can get to my job, all those things. And, and we will even say, you know, I, I people will say, I, I believe that it's, I would pay more taxes if, if they asked me to. That could be a good thing, right? And yet here's what I have never heard anybody say. I have never heard anybody say, you know, I was supposed to get this, this, uh, this fat tax rebate, but I decided, you know what, I'll just let the government keep it, right? They're kind of in a hole, I think they could use it, so you just keep it. No one ever says that. Why? Because the money is mine. That, that is one of the places that we most vehemently experience our desire to say mine is with our possessions, with our finances, with our resources. No, those things belong to me to use as I will. I'm the king. How I want, when I want. And listen, you can read a lot of stats that will talk about how people these days are much more free with talking about how much money they make, right? We're so much more free with our finances. Maybe but we're not opening up our budgets to each other, people, right? We want a kind of transparency, but, but to that level of personal decision, no, because it's mine. And to be a follower of Jesus, to live this reoriented life with a new center of gravity is to return to our true identity as stewards who were operating under the authority of our king. to be people who are stewarding God's creation, to be people who are steward stewarding our time, to be people who are stewarding the privileges that we have been given, the gifts that we have been given, and yes, also to be people who are stewarding our money under the authority of the God who owns all of it anyway. 
but only our, our paychecks, but our assets, our, our homes, our investments, our savings, our resources, that we would say to the Lord, Lord, this all belongs to you, and for a season, you have entrusted these resources to me. And now, with all of the creativity and freedom we've been given, we get to steward those things. Not out of terror or fear of punishment, but out of the reverence that comes, out of the joy of knowing that we already have obtained the smile of our Father. It would be really easy to talk about money as kind of this religious lever we can pull to get something from God. That our money can easily become a kind of religious proving ground. Friends, that is not the gospel. What's true about you, what's true about us as a community is what was true of the church in Acts, that great grace was upon them all. That great grace is upon us all. That you've been given everything you need for life and godliness. That God has abundantly poured out his love on you. Not because of what you and I have done, but because of his great love for us. And because of that abundant blessing, uh, and because it's, because it's a gift to us, a gift of grace, there's nothing we can do to earn it or to deserve it. And so what we do with our money is not a lever that we pull to get more from God. No, what we do with our money is an expression of, of the grace that has already been given to us. That we would say to God, or, or we recognize that we are not owners of anything, that we are your stewards. Okay, so that is easy enough to do, right? In, well, that's not easy to do. Theoretically, in times of abundance, we can say, okay, that makes sense, right? I'm happy enough to give. Uh, honestly, there are some benefits. It makes me feel good, so that's a win. Especially as long as it doesn't involve me saying no to anything else. I hate saying no to myself. Big both and guy, right? You want cake or ice cream? Yes, both. Don't want to have to say no to myself. And I was reading this article this week uh, that popped up on my recommended news feed, you know? It was from Forbes. And this guy, uh, there's a guy named Dar LaBeach. That was his name. And he, at the beginning of the pandemic, lost his job, uh, I think in marketing, something in New York. And he realized, okay, my priorities are way off. I got to get out of here. I'm going to go to Mexico, sit on the beach, and figure this stuff out. And he's talking about how he kind of has this spiritual awakening. And, and this, is, this is one of the things he came to realize. Never again would I not take the trip, book the flight, eat the thing because of money. Needing money is not going to interrupt my need to live life. Hmm. <laughs> we could unpack a lot of things from that statement, right? And it's easy for us to talk about, well, I'm not a slave to money, right? I'm not, I'm not giving all my hours away. I'm not, I'm not working for the man or for the weekend. No, I want to use my money to get all the things uh, th- that I'm going to enjoy in my life. Yeah, still a life that is driven by money, right? Just all the things that money can buy. And what he's saying is what is often true about my own heart. He just has the guts to say it out loud. Never again would I not take the trip, book the flight, eat the thing because of money. 
No, needing money is not going to interrupt my need to live life. That is inside of me because I hate saying no to myself. Is that in any of you? And what we see here in Acts, oh, it's a totally different approach to money, isn't it? To our finances, to our resources. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to any as any had need. This is a kind of sacrificial giving. Right? These people aren't selling their vacation homes. Right? They're selling the extra pieces of land that for them are an, insur an insurance policy in a world where there was no insurance. They were living in an incredibly unstable world that was always and often kind of at the whim or the changes of the political situation, right, of famine, of natural disasters. And it, it was a world in which there was basically z little to no middle class. And so to have any kind of extra resources was a major achievement in life. To not simply be living, uh, well, paycheck to paycheck wouldn't quite be right, right? But uh, hand to mouth. These extra pieces of property, they don't represent even their children's college education. They represent a sense of security in their lives. And what these people are willing to do is to say, I'm going to put these things at the disposal of this new community, really at disposal of the Lord. That is a kind of sacrificial giving that this week has been so convicting for me. We've got to ask, what sustains that kind of life? What is it that would be happening inside, inside of a person that would make them pay a price for what they believe? That would be willing, that would make a person willing to be able to experience the pain that comes from having new priorities. We see it in verse 33 of this passage. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. It's it's the message of the gospel, it's the hope of the resurrection that we find shaping this community. It's this message of Jesus' resurrection, of his grace that gathered this community in the first place, that changed this community, and that was sustaining the change in the community. Really? The resurrection, right? That's what changes these people? Yes! One of the, thing, one of the ways that scripture describes Christ, it says that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. And what that means is that Jesus is the first of a new creation. That when he rose from the grave, when he, when, he, uh, when he put sin to death and when he conquered, when he put sin to death and when he conquered death itself and re-entered our space-time world, that what he was declaring is that there is a new creation and it's, it's coming. And that in the same way that he experienced that new creation in a new resurrection body, the promise is that that will be true for you if you were in Christ. We talk about this. I hope, I hope you get sick of hearing it. We talk about it so much. That the hope of heaven for us is not some disembodied existence floating in the clouds at an endless worship rock concert. That is not our hope of heaven. 
Our hope of heaven is new, real resurrection bodies, untainted by sin, living in a new heavens and a new earth. A new earth where heaven has come down and where God now dwells with you and with me, with his people. Friends, that is our hope. That's the hope of the resurrection. And that puts us on our way of thinking. We, we, we're living because of that hope on a totally different time horizon than the rest of our world. I don't know if you remember, we've talked about, well, we've talked about it a long time ago, but it, the, uh, the marshmallow experiment. You guys familiar with this one? So it's one of the most re- replicated social science experiments in the world. The findings of it are very robust and very consistent. And what, what they do for this experiment is they'll put a child in a room and put a marshmallow in front of them. And the, the, the researcher will say, you can eat this marshmallow now. Or I'll leave the room and come back in two minutes, five minutes, whatever it is. And if the marshmallow is still here, I will give you another marshmallow. And then you'll have two marshmallows. And then they leave the room. It is very hilarious. You can, you can look up videos of this, of what the children do with the marshmallow. Right, when the researcher leaves the room, some of them just pop it in their mouth right away. Other kids like turn around and try to look elsewhere. They like hide the marshmallow, right? And what, what the research will show is that the kids who can delay gratification, who cannot eat the marshmallow, long term, when they follow them over the course of their lives, tend to be far more successful than those who eat the marshmallow right away in terms of how these people define success in the world, okay? And what is happening in the brains of those little children is that they're, they're operating on a different time horizon. That they're able to say, I'm going to put off gratification in this moment for a bigger thing that's coming. That's true for us in Christ. That the hope that we have of what what is coming is so much greater than what we get here in our current world. That every, every no that you say in your life now that is out of faithfulness to Jesus is really a not yet. Every no that you say out of faithfulness to Jesus in your life right now is a not yet. Because what we are waiting for is something that is so much greater. What the scriptures tell us is that every promise of God is yes for us in Jesus Christ. That every time that we experience a no in our lives because we are following Jesus, there is really a yes that Jesus is saying to us. There's a yes for a right now and there's a yes for what is coming. Saying yes to a certain future that we know is coming. That's true with our money, with our resources, with how we spend them. That if there are things that we are saying no to in this life out of faithfulness to Jesus, that there is a not yet for that thing that we are hoping to get for ourselves by spending the money on it. Like if I say no uh, to a trip that I want to take out of faithfulness to what the Lord's calling me to, right? But there's something that I'm looking for that I'm hoping for in that trip. And that's not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with traveling. It's great. And that desire that is, that is maybe even layers down for excitement, for adventure, for a sense of purpose and direction, maybe even for a deep sense of rest. The promise is that there is a way in which that is coming to me ultimately in a new heavens and a new earth. 
And there's a way, even here in, in the present, where my saying no invites me into a deeper experience of what I already have in Christ. That every time that we say no, that really it's a not yet. That frees us then to use our resources differently. To give in a way that's sacrificial, even that would cost us something because of the hope that we have for, for the future. And that when we choose to live that way, not only are we borrowing from the hope of the future and pulling it into the present, but we're actually strengthening our ability to engage with that hope now and into the future. That that hope is becoming more real to us. And the resurrection, not only does it anchor our hope in the future, not only does it change our time horizon and strengthen us for sacrifice, but it sustains our stewardship because what it tells us is that Jesus for whom we are stewarding these resources, the king whose authority that we're operating under, that king is even now ruling and reigning over our world. He's not an absentee ruler. He's not far away and distant. No, he's with us here and now. He's with you. You, if you were in Christ, are com in communion with him every moment of every day. He's a living, breathing Jesus, a Jesus who promises us he's coming back. And it's out of, it's, it's through that relationship with him, that connection with him, that we then get to ask, Lord, how are you calling me to steward my resources? And we get to move forward with the freedom and the joy that comes from being on mission with Jesus in our world. Romans 8.32 tells us that he who did not spare his own son but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? What Paul is saying is God has already given everything he can give to you in giving Jesus Christ for you everything that your God is for you that he loves you and that's before you have done anything for him and so when we are called in to, to giving with the kind of generosity that we see in this passage it's, it's a gift to us it's another way that God is giving to us by asking us to give because that is all God is ever doing to us is, is giving to us and giving us what is best for us That teaches us how to see and use our money, that money then becomes the tool that God created it to be. The resurrection is not only about the hope that we have in the future and the king that we have now, but the, the resurrection has, through Jesus, broken into our current world. That the kingdom of heaven is here, it's among us. And that then directs how we would steward our resources that we get to steward those resources uh, for the benefit of that kingdom. To say to God, your kingdom is here, so how are you asking me, asking me then to use my money as a tool that advances the interests of that kingdom? That's what we see happening in this passage, right? That this group of people, it's been brought in, it, it's been brought together that, that there's this new family that is formed. It's a group of people who are total strangers to each other. Think about that. These people are selling 
fields, resources, on, on top of the 10% they're probably already tithing to the temple. They're going and selling these things because there are people in their community who are destitute. In a time when being, being in poverty m- meant death. And they're saying, no, there may be people in this community who I don't even know, but who I want to leverage my resources uh, on their behalf. Because that's what it means to be a part of this kingdom together. That our resources become a tool that we get to exercise for the benefit of the kingdom. What an adventure to ask the Lord, how are you, how are you asking me to participate in that with, with the money, with the resources you've asked me to steward for you? And I will tell you that what it did in the ancient world is it, it changed everything. It forged an entirely different kind of community. See, in the, kind of in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world right there, kind of around the Mediterranean, there was no category for this kind of community. None. That relationships were all about give and take. One of the primary relationships in this society was a patronage relationship. So if you were poor, you would have someone who was rich sometimes who supported you, who would give you money, help you meet your basic needs. But the expectation is that when that person gave you money, you were now bound to that person. That when they had a political decision to make, uh, you would follow them. You would vote the way they wanted you to vote. That when they had someone they wanted to fight, guess who picked up the clubs and did the fighting? the people who were going to them to get money. So there was always this sense of expectation tied in relationship. In the ancient world, friendship, uh, friendship was only ever supposed to be between people who were peers. So yeah, there were times where people would practice generosity to each other, but you would only practice generosity to someone who had the same kind of social standing that you did. Yes, um, I'm happy to get dinner this time because I know that you will get dinner next time and it will be at just as nice of a restaurant as I want to go to as I took you to. That's the way that friendship functioned in the ancient world and we see something so different on display here. It blew up this idea of relationship that people who had means would come and lay it at the apostles' feet which means they had no authority over where it was going. They couldn't hold it over anybody's head. What we see is a community of radical equality regardless of social class. What we see is a church that was so ahead of its time in society and it so challenged people that this is one of the primary things that people mocked about the early church. That people who were writing against Christianity would make fun of this part of the church, that people would give up their stuff for people who were poor. Can you imagine? That was one of the primary Uh, the primary ways that people attack the church. Probably in a lot of ways because it was so convicting. It's also part of what generated curiosity about this community. What is going on here that these people would be so changed that they'd be willing to leverage their resources in this way? So what we see is the internal and the external mission of the church coming together. That the way that we care for and give to and love each other, what we do with our resources in advancing the kingdom, it speaks to the outside world that testifies, it witnesses to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ because of his resurrection. 
that's the adventure that we are being called on, called deeper into together. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word. And Lord, we confess uh, that we are so often a people uh, who fail to live into the freedom that you have given us when it comes to our resources. Lord, that rather than looking to you, uh, rather than looking to you for our safety, for our stability, Lord, that what we do often is we look uh, to the things that we have. Lord, for comfort, for hope, for a sense of safety. And Father, we've confessed that to you this morning, and we ask that you would continue to grow us uh, in the discipline of, of giving. Lord, that in doing that, that you would be shaping our hearts and our minds uh, to look more like your son, Jesus. And we pray these things in his precious and holy name. Amen. You guys can go ahead and grab, uh, grab your seats. So, we figured this was a, an appropriate time this morning uh, to talk a little bit about the, f- the family business of our finances here as a congregation. So if you are new this morning, if this is your first time being here, welcome. Uh, I'm glad you get to sit in on this little bit of a family meeting. Uh, and I just want to start by, by acknowledging, you know, we, we talk a lot here about the fact, well, when we do talk about giving, what, what we say is that we don't pass a plate here. And that's true. Uh, we don't do that, and we don't do that because we don't want you to think that you were invited here for your money. And that continues to be true for who we are as a church, as a congregation. And I think sometimes in, uh, in saying that, what we have failed to do, what I have failed to do and lead us in, is uh, the kind of transparency about what our financial situation actually is as a church. And so what we're going to kind of try to do this morning is bring some visibility to, to where we are financially and the opportunity that that has for us as a church to be participating in the mission that God is about in East Nashville. Does that sound good? Great. <laughs> uh, and as we talk about where we are financially as a church, because that's got to involve us talking about the vision and the mission that God has called us to, to be a part of with him in East Nashville. Because what's true about the way that we do our budgeting here as a church is that it is all driven by the, by the mission that we believe God has called us on. The way the budgeting process works here is that the, the first thing that we spend time doing uh, is, is sitting down and asking the Lord, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing in our city? What are you doing in our church, and our congregation? What are you doing in our part of town? And how are you asking us to be a part of that? And our budget is built off of that. And so for us as a congregation this year, as we've thought and prayed and wrestled about, God, what are you doing in East Nashville? What, what we believe is true, what we know is true, is that there are new people flooding into East Nashville all the time, right? That if the trajectory that we are on uh, of people cutting their lots in half and putting new houses in the back continues, uh, we're going to double the population of East Nashville here pretty quick that there are new people coming here all the time and the people who are coming, what we know is true about them is that there are people who are spiritually hungry. We talked about that some last week. And that as a community, we want to be about proclaiming the name of Jesus to those people, to our neighbors, to ourselves and to them, that we would be a community of worship. What's happening here this morning? What's happening in our living rooms and when we gather in small groups as we're maturing in Christ? Be community of worship and a community of witness. That's declaring who Jesus is to the world around us. 
And then we believe that is what God has called us to as a community, to growing a healthy, vibrant, gospel-centered church here in East Nashville. And so our budget this year reflects those priorities, like being in this building, being in a place that's visible that allows us to connect with our neighbors. It has to do with the events that we're doing throughout the semester, like live on the lot, right? Again, a way of being visibly present in our community, of being able to say to people, come and see. So our budget, it reflects those priorities. I'll get our first number up on the screen, our first slide. Okay, whoa. Uh, this, is the, this is the number that it takes for that ministry to happen here in East Nashville this year. This is, this is the, the overall, the sum total of our, of our budget. So $575,000, uh, that's what it takes for that ministry to happen, to move forward like we've hoped and prayed it would happen in East Nashville this year. Okay, we can, can you, can we just black it out here for a second? Uh, and then, so that's, that's what it takes for us to be a part of the mission that we believe God has called us to as a community. But, but the vision that we have here, it's folded into the larger vision of what we believe God has called Midtown to be a part of in our city. Does anyone remember what the Midtown mission statement is? We haven't talked about it in a while, so. Gospel, Gospel transformation through there we go, okay. Gospel transformation through multiple congregations, that that is what we are about as an overall Midtown movement, that we here in Midtown East are one church, one congregation, that's a part of this overall uh, family that we call Midtown of five different congregations throughout the city. And that what we believe is happening, what is true about Nashville, just like East Nashville, is that people are flooding into Nashville all the time. We're experiencing that in our lives in so many ways. It's exciting. And what we also know is that we're being flooded with people who we want to hear the gospel, who need the good news of who Jesus is. And that what we are about as a community is not gathering all of those people into one massive place, but into, we believe we've been called to plant churches in different communities throughout Nashville that are, pro- that's procl- that are proclaiming the gospel. That that is what we're about. And doing that even in communities that don't necessarily look exactly like this community. That's what the work in Napier is all about. Is us asking God, how would you ask us as a movement to steward our resources in a way that, that participates with the work of the gospel that is going on in a diverse, uh, across our diverse city? That's the movement that we're a part of. And this next slide, uh, it reflects that. So what this shows is, uh, okay, so as a part of that, I'll say this, as a part of that church planting movement, you know, that's how Midtown East was started. That our Rocket Town congregation, way back, like eight years ago, said, hey, we are willing to cut off our arm and let it go to East Nashville. That we believe there are people in East Nashville who are going to be reached by the gospel but are only going to be reached for the gospel by people who are living in that community. And so what they said is, go. Take people from our community who are leaders in our community. Take some of our resources and go plant a church there. And rather than this community having to, to go and find outside funding from other sources to plant this church, Midtown said, we will do that work for you. We'll give to this church being a thing. And Midtown as a whole, right, the, the giving that comes in above and beyond other congregations' budgeted giving is what has sustained us as a congregation for the last eight years. And that's what this slide reflects, that our congregational responsibility for, 
uh, for giving this year, our budgeted amount is $423,000. And that means that the rest of that money, the 152,000 other dollars, are being given by other Midtown congregations. What a gift. What a gift that other people in our city would say, we want to see the gospel go forward in East Nashville, and so we'll say no to some of the things we would like to do as a community so we can say yes to what God is doing in and through this community. What a gift. And the invitation for us as a community is to say, we would love uh, to see the, the amount that Midtown is supporting us uh, decrease. That what we would love to see happen as a community is that we are, as we are leveraging the resources that God has given us, is that we would no longer be a congregation that is using up other resources of Midtown, but that we would be a congregation that is giving to the work of Midtown more broadly. That we would get to say in the same way that, you know, we've got Midtown 12 South that's planted Midtown West, that we would get to say, oh, we want to plant Midtown Madison or Midtown Donaldson that there would be another gospel, church, gospel preaching church in that area that's proclaiming the good news of Jesus. That in the same way that Midtown has said, we wanna see a church thrive in the Napier community, that we could say, we wanna see another church thriving in the Casey community. So as we give toward, uh, as you give, as we give, we're participating in that bigger mission. And we'll go ahead and flip to the next slide. This is the budget slide that you see kind of in our normal weekly rotation now. And what it reflects for us down here on the East Nashville line, that the deficit is the amount that it takes us to become a self-sustaining congregation. But ultimately, big picture, that's our goal, is that we would be able to sustain ourselves and then give beyond that to the work of the movement. And so week to week, as you see this slide running, that's the number that you're going to see there at the bottom. And what I want to invite you guys into, challenge you to think about, is to ask, to ask the Lord to be prayerful in considering, Lord, how would you ask me to give and be a part of your mission here in East Nashville? Many of you are already giving to the work that is happening here. And not just to here, but the work that God is doing around the world to advance his mission. Yes, we're saying yes to all of those things. And the question that I have been wrestling with this week and would challenge you to wrestle with is, Lord, um, am I giving sacrificially? How do you want to direct my resources towards your mission, to the mission here at Midtown and to your mission more broadly in the world? And as you pray, pray about that, as you think about that, as you wrestle through that, we trust that the Lord is going to lead you. Uh, the Lord is going to lead you. And that'll be a part of how he provides for our congregation. If we were to break that number down, that $575,000 number, just to kind of put it in nuts and bolts, that's 100 people giving around, well, a, a little over $5,000 a year. I guess $5,750 a year, right? That's how math works. Uh, somewhere under, just under $500 a month. And you may think, whoa, that is so much money. I can't do that. Of course, not everybody here can do that. That's fine. We're not saying that's what everyone has to give. What we're saying is that's kind of nuts and bolts, what it takes for us to meet that budget, and would invite you to pray and to think about, Lord, how are you calling me to be involved in that, whether that's uh, more or less than that amount? And what we trust is that God will continue to, to provide uh, for us through that and to be on his mission in our city through that. Okay. Okay. <laughs>
we're going to take some time kind of each quarter to give a little bit more of like a, of a snapshot of what's going on and then on a regular basis just kind of give you guys updates to invite you into that as a regular part of what it means for us to be on mission together here in our city. So if you would, go ahead and stand and I'm going to read uh, this benediction for us out of Romans 8, 